Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for the Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate. Our first story is by Brian Terrell called The Greatest Compliment I Ever Received. Growing up in Texas in the 70s as a boyhood daydreamer, nights too, I dreamed of being the proverbial all-star high school football player. I idolized the NFL players, but saw those high school kids as living, breathing gods who walked amongst us. Though they were mostly upperclassmen, we shared a common practice field. Big, strong, handsome, and always with a girl or two in tow. I so wanted to be like them. One of these days, I hoped. My young, prepubescent ninth grader self had no business out on a football field, way too small and frail, but I refused to see that. I made a great little leaguer in seventh grade, but one day, the other guys started growing bigger and stronger, and a few of us didn't keep up. The rules were different back then. Blindside, crack-back blocks, and horse-collar tackles were completely legal and therefore in our little guy's repertoire. How else was I supposed to bring those big guys down? As a freshman, I showed up in August for two two a-days in the hot, humid, brutal Texas Gulf Coast heat. I made every single practice, but I never got to play in the games third or fourth down the list in the depth chart and always overlooked, even in the garbage time. Along came the final week of the 1981 fall football season. The junior varsity had joined us for the week. They lined all 20 of them up across from us. Nothing intimidating, as we knew them as classmates and another school team with a losing record. And many of them were like me, too delusional to know they shouldn't be on a football field, but not giving up on that chance at gridiron glory. It was a small bunch of 10th graders who could not yet make the varsity squad, but could no longer be on the 9th grade team, and 11th graders who weren't athletically gifted or physically big enough to make the varsity squad. The coach told us to listen up as he read a list of player names. I, along with many of the scrubs, was on this list. Apparently, the JV were shorthanded going into the final week of the season. Since the freshman squad had way too many guys, many of us never even got to play, someone came up with the idea to lend or trade us cut from the team is how I took it, to them for the next Thursday night's game. I went through a mix of emotions. The JV wanted me. That felt great. But misery loves company, so I focused on my feelings of betrayal and embarrassment. Feelings of not being wanted and not being good enough. And this, after nearly a whole August of two-a-days and fall weekdays of after-school practice, usually as a member of the dummy, 
a mimic of this week's opponent, offense or defense for the first stringers to beat up on. We headed over to the JV side. They greeted us and told us, we're having a scrimmage today, freshmen against the JV. We split up for a few moments to get acquainted and to discuss a strategy. We knew the first string freshman guys were going to destroy us. Many of them were headed to the varsity squad next year. It simply wasn't customary to have a freshman on a 4A varsity team back then. Our newly formed iteration of the JV squad was on defense as the freshman alpha males broke their huddle. Positioned at the cornerback, I was still fuming about being cut, betrayed, insulted, etc. I wasn't alone in my anger. The first couple of plays were up the middle away from me, and those interior guys held their own. With no success up the middle, the coaches went outside, my direction. First play to me, I shut it down. They tried me again. Again, I shut them down. We were supposed to be the underdogs, but we were kicking some serious butt, hooting and hollering. We found our success infectious. The coaches, the ones that had just cut me, noticed this and decided, we're calling plays at him until we defeat him. I got on their proverbial radar. The next play they sent Alan Fitz at me. He was one of those aforementioned gods, pound for pound the strongest human being I've ever known, but a good guy. He never bullied us little guys. We all loved Alan. He wasn't a part of the clique many of his teammates founded. He did his own thing and wasn't afraid to put a beat down on any guy that had it coming. I witnessed a few of those encounters. I watched him punch Richard Chambers in the nose for talking smack. After Alan bloodied his nose, he stood there, tapping on the left side of his face, daring Richard. Go ahead, why don't you put one right here? That retaliatory punch never happened. Back to Alan coming my way. It was a pass out in the flat to him. I went into kamikaze mode, forfeiting any sense of self-preservation or potential injury. The pass was a little high. I got the perfect form tackle leverage as a result and put him flat on his back. This only happened once, trust me. I'm guessing the stars aligned for me that day. The underdog JV squad went absolutely bonkers at this point. In the aftermath of human wreckage, I lay there waiting to get up and Carrie Harris, another god I admired, came over and grabbed me with both hands. Before I knew what was happening, he ripped me out of the pile and pulled me into his face mask, yelling at me, you can be on my team any day, and smacked me upside with all the tough love I could handle. He repeated that exultation twice more. He gave me some of the greatest words ever spoken to me in all my life, all the while treating me like I was truly a teammate. 
I have never surpassed the emotional high that I experienced that day. It was the greatest compliment I have ever received. They got me on that next play, a lateral pass to a different back in the flat. This time, like a big dumb bass, I bit on the fake and the guy threw a pass to a wide open receiver downfield. Oh, well, can't win them all. The emotional high I had just experienced still intoxicated me. Alan caught up to me later, and I had a moment of uncertainty what would happen. But he shook my hand and told me, Good, stick out there, man. Some more special words that I'll never forget. Our next story is from the editor, Charity Bishop, called Hanging On to Winter. Looks like we got a real Colorado winter this year. You know the one. Every Wednesday on the dot, it snows. You plow out your dirt road. The wind blows it back over the next morning. The FedEx truck doesn't come for days, and UPS gets stuck at the end of your driveway. It would be real easy to complain about it, but I know all this snow means a pretty spring is on its way. I love a lush, green prairie full of the little white prairie lilies that come up around Easter. In the meantime, it's a good time to snuggle up home with your pets or loved one and read a book. I read two excellent quotes recently that made me think, one of them was, everything out of your life is just outside of your comfort zone. And the other was, the you other people know isn't the same you that you know. Huh? Well, the first one seems obvious. It's easy to wish and hope for the life you want, but sometimes it's just a little bit outside what you're comfortable with. If you choose to step outside your easy space, you soon learn that you can do this and those things become possible. What if instead of assuming you can't do it, you assume that you can? Another author, talking on the same topic, said that she looks at it this way. Her fear does not matter. If her body can do it, she can do it. She may be afraid to send an email asking for a promotion or a pay raise, but Her fingers are capable of typing up that letter and hitting send, so she might as well do it. Being told no is better than never asking in the first place, because the answer could be yes. If it's no, you are no worse off. If it's yes, your life is going to change. Some people love change. Others hate it. But it can be a bit disorienting. At the best of times, I moved a cabinet in my kitchen and I know that for weeks I will be going to the wrong place to look for things. Now I understand why my cats hate me moving furniture. But it's a necessary change because I needed room for something else important in my kitchen. Sometimes to make room for an improvement, you need to be willing to experience a little discomfort. But the only way to grow is to take risks. Some ideas turn out great, 
Others are less than swell. But they all teach you something about yourself and keep you moving forward. The second quote about how your friends know their version of you made me ponder a bit. It's true how my friends see me is not the same way I see me. My views of myself can be better or worse than their views of me. I always found it odd when two people had opposing views of me. The truth is, we all filter others through ourselves. What we pay attention to and what is important to us shapes how we interpret their words and deeds, which makes that you have the freedom to make the decisions that are best for you and your life without needing to worry too much about what people will think because they will see it through themselves and it may not even be about you. For example, the other day a friend came to me upset about something another friend had told her. She was angry about how this person had been treated. I reminded her to consider the source. Her friend has a tendency to filter things through his negativity. So even if the third party involved didn't mean something in the way he took it, the negative lens through which he heard it made him only remember the bad parts of their conversation. But a person with a positive outlook who tends to overlook the negative would choose to remember only the good things the friend said. I'm a pessimistic optimist, which means that I fret a lot and then notice my fretting and decide to try and be positive instead. It's a slow process to shift your brain from anxious thoughts to happy ones, but the more I do it, the more progress I make. I am gradually finding my way to a quiet mind. It's a little strange because I am a chronic overthinker, but the more I choose not to overthink, the fewer anxious thoughts float around in my mind, and the more inner peace takes over instead. Doing this means being present to myself and to the situation at hand, present enough to notice what I am doing to know why I am doing it, and to make a decision to choose a different way forward instead. If you are like me and tend to expect the worst, overthink your decisions, and struggle to stay positive, here's a few tips I've learned along the way to make a quiet mind easier to achieve. Do something that forces you out of your mind and into your body, such as yoga or Pilates. If you meditate, choose to dwell on the positive things in your life. If you start to worry, ask yourself if this is yours to fret about or if this belongs to someone else. Instead of overanalyzing things, ask yourself instead how you can solve the problem. Worrying about it does not fix it. Finding a solution is a more effective way to think. Often the easiest answer is the most correct. So go with that one. Learn to stick with your decision and not reconsider it. Lastly, remember that while this winter may be dull, it can also be a time for rest and reflection. Spring will soon come 
and our lives will get busy. But for now, winter is a gift in which to find peace in your own mind. Use it well. Stuck inside? Go on an adventure with one of Charity's books. You can find them at Amazon.com. Experience the peril and intrigue of the court alongside the devious Sir Thomas Lavelle, the king's enforcer, as he unravels plots of murder and intrigue in the Tudor Throne series. Read them in order or as standalones. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Someone who has to be hands-on or prefers to dream instead? Sixteen Kinds of Crazy will help you understand and your loved ones by introducing you to your MBTI type. And coming soon, a daring magical tale of peril, prejudice, and romance unfolds against a magician's competition in The Night of Wonders. You can learn more at www.charitiesplace.com. Our next story is by Tammy Hallam, called The Loyal Wives of Weinsberg. In the year 1140, King Conrad III, a nephew of Emperor Henry V, lay siege to the castle of Weinsberg. It belonged to the Duke Welf VI in Bavaria, Germany, current day Baden-Württemberg, Germany. The people were on the verge of being overrun and slaughtered by Conrad's rapidly advancing army. When King Conrad finally gained the castle, he intended to kill the men of Weinsberg and burn every building to the ground, since the men of the city had not yielded to his demands with a surrender, but elected to fight. Some of the male representative of Weinsberg pleaded with King Conrad III to leave their women unharmed. In a moment of mercy and kindness, Conrad agreed to leave them before he killed the men and laid waste to the city. After all, the women were not a threat to King Conrad, or so he thought. In a further act of charity, he allowed the women to take with them their most precious possessions, proclaiming he was not about to make them go hungry on the road after he sacked their homes. He gave them a deadline to gather their things and leave, before he murdered their husbands and burned their homes to the ground. When the deadline came and the women gathered at the gates of the city, it stunned King Conrad III to see the women were not carrying gold, food, or clothing, but had their husbands, sons, or other male family members slung over their backs. Conrad was a man of his word, and the scene moved him. He allowed them to leave the city, saving both the men of the town and the town itself. Like King Conrad III, sometimes it may appear our homes, our churches, and our communities are under siege, but we have the opportunity to carry our most precious possessions, our families, churches, and our communities to safety. Sometimes 
we must make the choice to leave behind what's less important, to carry our most precious possessions to safety through prayer and care. May God help us to be as brave as the loyal wives in Weinsberg. Our next story is by Patricia Rupert called The 1950 Mercury. Dad bought a shiny black 1950 Mercury when I was in the first grade. Those cars were built like tanks and could run forever. With Dad's mechanics background, he made sure it did. One time on the way home from work, the steering column broke. Too stubborn to stop and get a tow truck to take it into the garage, he found by pushing real hard on the steering wheel, he could keep the column connected and steer, albeit carefully. He got the darn thing home into the driveway and ordered the parts to repair it himself. He could fix anything, the roof on a house, household appliances, anything. It might take him a week or months, but he got it done. Over many years, the road salt used in Cleveland during the winter to melt snow took its toll on the body of the car. Not a problem for the old man. He got out his acetylene torch, a crowbar, and sheets of metal. I held the small sheets of metal against the rusted-out sections of the mercury with the crowbar while he welded it over the holes. He told me not to look at the acetylene torch while he did it since it would burn my eyes. It sure was tempting, but I knew better. He had goggles on and could see what he was doing. It wasn't easy being maybe nine, but I was pressed all my strength so the metal would hold tightly and make a good repair. Man, that car got ugly. Even worse, he drove that darn car until I graduated from high school. How embarrassing. Riding to graduation in that mottled mess. We wore long white graduation gowns and carried a dozen red roses, and I arrived in the ugliest car in Cleveland. Next, a little column from the Elbert County Partnership called Ghost Town in Elbert County. Fondus, a ghost town at the intersection of County Road 69 and County Road 98 in southern Elbert County, is sparking interest among locals wanting to know more about this once lively little town. If you drive through the desolate streets today, you will see numerous decaying buildings that clearly tell a history of lives gone by. Some of the buildings are in better shape than others, and one appears to have had some restoration work done in recent years, but overall the clock is ticking on these previously inhabited storefronts. Established in 1895, Fondus was said to be known for producing lumber from the ponderosa pine forests that naturally grow along the Elbert County landscape. The 1940s Elbert County census is dotted with Fondus residents, farmers, and blue-collar workers. Among the buildings still standing today is the general store. Seven years after the town was founded, it is said that George Conneroe opened this store, marking the town center until 1949. This store was the meeting place for events, parties, and a stop for the daily stagecoach from Elbert. 
This simple brick building shared space with the doctor's office and pharmacy, making it a landmark for the townspeople in their daily lives. The post office was also established in 1895 and operated until 1954. Ella Cox is said to be the first postmaster there. Though the town is all but deserted today, there are still some signs of life in and around the surrounding areas. Fondus Baptist Church appears to be operational, but there is not much information available about this church and its current activities. Some speculate that the town was named after Fundy, Italy. This town is a diamond in the rough for those with an interest in abandoned town and local history buffs, and it's right here in our own Elbert County. If you have any sites or stories of Elbert County history that you would like to share for our upcoming Elbert County Historical Guide, please submit them to Daniel Rosales, and you can email them at danielrosales45 at gmail.com. That's D-A-N- I-E-L-R-O-S-A-L-E-S-4-5 at gmail.com or by phone 303-324-0674. Thank you for joining us for the Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate.